Welcome to Mission 150, a podcast about the history of mission in the Adventist Church, building up to the 150th anniversary of Adventist foreign missions in 2024. I'm David Trim. I'm your co-host. I'm the director of the General Conference Office of Archives, Statistics and Research. And I'm Sam Nevis, the Associate Director of Communication, and I'm here to help you understand church history. I represent the local leader, the pastor. I'm not a historian. Most of you are not historians either. So we hope to have a beautiful conversation about mission that inspires you to do something for Jesus today. But we do have a very distinguished historian with us, and we're delighted to welcome Dr. Michael Campbell to the program. Michael is Director of Archive Statistics and Research for the North American Division. He's also a very widely published Seventh-day Adventist historian with a particular expertise on China, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Michael, welcome to the Mission 150 podcast. David and Sam, it's great to be here with you. So today we're going to be talking about the very first missionary to China, Mm -hmm. Abram LaRue. Michael, tell us the basics. Who was Abram LaRue and why does he matter for the history of Adventist mission? Absolutely. So Abram LaRue is this uh, uh, individual who has a passion to want to share the Adventist message. And we'll talk a little bit about his background and story and conversion in a little bit here. But, But really, once he tastes the Adventist message, he has a burden on his heart to want to share that message in Asia. And actually, he makes his way slowly across the Pacific until he finally ends up in Hong Kong. So in a way, he can be considered uh, both the first Adventist missionary to Asia in a way, as well as specifically the first Seventh-day Adventist missionary uh, to China. I, I, I want to create a reference here between his name and, and the biblical Abram. So Abram okay. in the Bible was called when he was eight years old to leave his father's house. He wasn't a, a spring chicken either. He um, wasn't. There's a good parallel there. <laughs> yeah. We don't know, in fact, much about Abram LaRue's early life. We mostly know about him yeah. after he became an Adventist. But what do we know about him? Where was he born? When? And, and what do we actually know about him before, like the biblical Abram, he received that call? So as, as you know, doing research, it's kind of like an investigative process where you're trying to find based on extant records. And so one of the places is census records. So we know that he was born November 25, 1822 in New Jersey and that his family uh, were French immigrants who, who came over. Hence the name. Hence the name and uh, that they were farmers. And unfortunately, what we do know is that uh, all of his family, except for him, presumably because he was this intrepid, he goes west with the gold rush and, and everything else. At some point while he's on his travels, his family back home all perish. Now, it's not clear what it was. We know cholera and diphtheria. There was a right. lot of disease. Right. So it could have been uh, one of the cholera outbreaks in the early um, 19th century. That, that, that I'm just, we don't know, except that his family which was a fairly large farming family, all perished. Mm. And so um, he goes west and, and um, he's an explorer and strikes it rich with the gold rush. 
was well, that's fascinating. So he goes to California. Mm -hmm. Had he been religious in his earlier life? Do we know anything about his religious experience before he goes to California? We don't know anything about that. The only thing we do know is that once he goes west, first to Idaho, then California, in this gold rush, um, that that uh, he apparently is is quite well to do at one point. We know that he invested some real estate in San Francisco, but at one point. Uh, there is a, a, a horrific fire, and this is in the day before there's insurance. And so he uh -huh. basically goes from, uh, well, we say rags to riches, but riches back to rags. <laughs> and, and that creates an existential crisis from which he goes out into the mountains. And that's really the first reference point we know of his religious background, where he becomes a dunkard. A, a, a type of Baptist. A type of Baptist, yeah. So-called because they dunked people. It's, uh, it's, exactly. Uh, it's, uh, I think, a German version of the Baptists. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's pause for a moment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by they dunked people? So it was, dunked was not what they called themselves. It was a name that they were given by other people because they baptized by immersion. Oh, I see. And but so, it, but and there so was the, no, there was not a distinctive violence in the way that there they, was no. They, the, they didn't. No. They didn't force people. They didn't force people to be <laughs> done. It was voluntary. Self-referential, because he refers to himself as having been a dunkard. So, yeah. Uh, but but he was. This was. So he has a conversion experience, and and having, you know, lost everything, uh, he goes up into the mountains, becomes a sheep herder. So he he made he made money with gold. He did. He invests it. He loses his investment. He loses it. He has this, as you say, the existential crisis, mm -hmm. and he goes up into the mountains. What does he do in the mountains? So he's uh, tending sheep. He's a sheep herder. He's a shepherd. Shepherd, yeah. It's like yeah. Moses. Yeah. <laughs> so Abraham he's and go Moses. All the biblical heroes throughout his, his life. Some he's... great fun parallels here. So. <laughs> and, and we know that he's actually up in the mountains, and this is really where he has his introduction with Adventism. How old is he at this point? Uh, well, he was born in 1822, so by the time he's converted is 1873. So he's 50. So, yeah, early 50s, yeah. And how does he become a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, that's a great story because there is um, a man by the name of uh, Rule Stickney who has this sheep farm. And there's, uh, there's a family that's up there. Mr. Studebaker was his name. That's all I know about him. And uh, there's a... there's some Adventist evangelists passing out literature, uh, call porters that are passing out literature. And if I can just interrupt, yes. Michael, this uh -huh. is the era when Adventists have just started work in California. Correct. John N. Loughborough and Daniel Bordogo was the first missionaries, mm -hmm. and that's what they call, the, the church calls the missionaries going from the East Coast to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they set up the Adventist church in California in 1868. It's very vibrant, so the early 1870s is just when Adventist mission is really getting going yeah, in California. Yeah. It's catching so, on. So, mm -hmm. so that's the context for his encounter with this Adventist evangelist. You said handing out literature. Handing out literature. We don't actually know who that person was. We know who comes and follows up a little bit afterwards, but there's someone passing out literature. And, and you know, this is kind of part of the ethos of early Adventism is, is print the literature and distribute it. Yes. Yes, very Adventist. Yeah, and, and, and so this is what happens. And Mr. Studebaker, he's upset. I don't want this stuff. And his wife is interested, but she is in a very awkward position where she's both intrigued, but she knows her husband's opposed to it. So 
Abram LaRue is a sheep herder. He's kind of friends of the family, so she passes the literature on to him. And of course, uh, he's sort of a recluse, you might say, you know, tending sheep as a, as a shepherd. He starts reading and studying that literature, and that leads, that precipitates his conversion to, to Adventism. What does, and what happens next? Does he, does he immediately feel an interest in spreading the, the message or is he isolated up there with his sheep? What, what happens after he becomes a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, up until then, you know, he's, he you know, had this adventurous life and then he's up in the mountains. Uh, but now from being a recluse, he goes out and starts finding other shepherds, other hmm. bands of groups that are up there. It was also well known as a center for immigrants. So there's a lot of uh, immigrants that were known to have come over from Switzerland, also from the east coast of the United States, from the Carolinas. And so he's finding these these settlers, they would have called them or referred to themselves, and he's meeting with them in their homes. He's passing out literature, and so he's becoming an early um, culporter or evangelist, you might say, kind of just going door to door, building relationships. And it's some some of these other farmers and shepherds and and various individuals that are, some of them are actually making fun of him. Like, you know, here's, here's old Abram LaRue coming through again, passing out literature. And, uh, you know, don't you want to just smoke or do something else, you know? And, and he says, you know, um, I've got my company and my company is the Bible. Wow. And so, and he just continues sharing his faith. Okay. So let, let me ask a few questions mm -hmm. about that whole process. Yeah. Is this a one set of literature and done? Do we know if he received constant literature from the time, because I presume that would have been the review magazine. Or Signs of the Times. Signs of the Times, of the times, signs of the times which have West just Coast. started printing on the, it's the West Coast paper. Mm -hmm. okay. Of course, it would take many days to, hook, to, to to mail the review to its subscribers on the West Coast. So these, they set up the Signs of the Times, which often reprints things from the review, but also has its own article. So it's the West Coast review, basically. The parallels I'm trying to draw is he doesn't have a local church to go to, it seems, or does he? Not does he quite, not somewhere? initially, he... but there is an Adventist evangelist who will become very important in his story, William Healy. He comes through and had, had heard about Abram LaRue, and he starts holding evangelistic meetings. And from that, there is an Adventist, small Adventist congregation that begins to meet. And once that happens, and Abram LaRue has some fellow believers mm -hmm, that kind mm -hmm. of reap the the efforts of, of sharing this literature, this slow nurturing, planting the seeds, that this is a great source of joy to Abram LaRue. So just to, to clarify, initially he's what Adventists of the Times would have called an isolated Sabbath keeper. Absolutely. Right. And it, this is, all his experience was mediated. Mm -hmm. it, had, it had to go through literature at the time. Yeah. We have thousands of people, perhaps dozens of thousands of people today mm -hmm. that are so remote that they only connect with the Adventist message through our social media channels mm -hmm. in various parts of the world. Sure. Uh, just yesterday, we had somebody who, who wanted to be baptized, but they lived six hours from the nearest Adventist church. Wow. So just because we are describing a situation of hundreds of years ago, yeah. it does not mean that this is no longer the case. No. That's this is still the case today. That's really interesting, Sam, because that is a phenomenon of early Adventism, that it did spread partly through literature and partly through friends or family sending literature to somebody else saying, I think you'll be interested in this. And so that's why they actually have this term that they use even in, st in statistical reports, 
isolated Sabbath keepers. And people will write to the review and the signs of the time saying, I'm the only Adventist in, and I keep the Sabbath by myself and reading your articles is my Sabbath sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, we, we, we keep hearing still, that. And that's, that's but that's still the, that was because, of course, there were so few of them and they were scattered around and there were no cars. So to meet up with other Adventists, they would often do it once a quarter, which is actually, I think, the origin of why we have communion once a quarter, because uh-huh. isolated Sabbath keepers would get on their horse and cart okay. and make the long journey to meet with other Seventh day Adventists from a, a whole region once a quarter. But they, they, they had that isolation. But that, so you're saying that's still the case? Well, very much so. Perhaps we should resurrect that number because we are already discussing in this hybrid church environment yes. how those members can meet periodically. We're talking monthly, but quarterly seems to be, to be uh, the next obvious thing. And we could have a celebration of, of our whole region of, of Adventists right. who have no access to this. But a church is planted. So the purpose of that is... Yeah to plant a church there at some point. What's the name of that evangelist? That was William Healy. We're, okay, yeah. I'll come back to him and, later. And by the way, there's, there's a sweet irony here because Mr. Studebaker, who's opposed to his wife mm-hmm. learning about the Adventist message, mm-hmm. but she passes the literature along, he passes away, unfortunately, but once he's out of the picture, she feels free to study that Adventist, Adventist literature. So she and her children become Adventist. Hmm. So that's kind of a neat thing. And the other thing that's really neat is that there's another key player, some immigrants by the name of W.C. Granger, his wife, his children, they had immigrated West. They had kind of experienced a early version of the Dust Bowl, you know, where their farm had, had failed as they had moved across the country. So they're kind of still looking. And so they finally get to California. And, and one of the persons they meet is Abram LaRue, who shares the Adventist message with them, and they become part of that nucleus group that mm. William Healy organizes in there up in the mountains in that small little congregation. Now, we know that Granger becomes important in LaRue's story later, but I just want to True. go back to this extraordinary fact that yeah. here you have a man in his 50s, mm-hmm. which in the 19th century was regarded as being... Rather old. long-lived, yeah. You're, yeah. you're old mm-hmm. because... As you referred to, there are, there are all kinds of epidemic diseases, and so plenty of people die before they get to their 50s. He would have been regarded as being an elderly man. Um, he's never had a religious experience that we're aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly, not only does he become a Seventh-day Adventist, but he feels a call to ministry. And I think that's a remarkable testimony to the depth of his conviction. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also an encouragement to all of us, that mm-hmm. even if we think we don't have a ministry, God has something that we can do. God has something that he will call us to do, possibly when we don't expect it. Yeah, and, and more than that, how many men and women are called into ministry in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and they say, no, I'm too old to go to school. Right. I'm too old to study. I'm not going to do this. So that's on the, on the one hand. On the other hand, we have such structure for ministry that it took me 11 years between my first year of theology and ordination. Wow. So this is the equivalent to medicine. Have we made yes. this so difficult <laughs> <laughs> that when somebody receives a call now at, at 40 or 50, they think, nah, that's, that's really, I don't have all that's, that time. That's a really profound question. And, and as we'll see, I think it, it 
we could almost come back to that later because it, it's a question that's thrown up by the rest of LaRue's life and how he actually ends up going to China, which, you know, spoiler alert, but we've already said, yeah. we're talking about, <laughs> we've already said he, do, he goes to- He ends up in China. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or at least Hong Kong. Yeah. And, and so, but, but this, this, this very point that have we made it too difficult? Um, is there a place for somebody who God calls and yeah. feels a calling in their life. And I, you know, in LaRue's case, mm -hmm. um, perhaps it's easy because he's the only Adventist. Do we have any sense of how the official church hierarchy reacted to him? Does he, does he get on well with Healy when Healy comes out as far and sets as, up the church? As far as we know, I mean, the fact that they will later work together in Hawaii or the Sandwich Islands, as it was known back then, uh, I think seems to indicate uh, to me that obviously they enjoyed working together. Sure. Right. If, if you're going to continue yeah. to create more opportunities to, so they, they see, see themselves as aligned in a common cause and uh, furthering the mission of the church. Right. You know, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a really good question. Um, have we made it too difficult? God calls whom he calls. Yeah, he does. The Holy Spirit calls whom he wishes to call. Um, and there should be a place for people who in later life feel that call. Perhaps they've only, like LaRue, they've only just come into the church. Perhaps they've done other things and now God is prompting them. Yeah. And, and today, you don't need a theology degree to be a missionary somewhere. You do need to go to the Mission Institute, which is a three-week intensive course on... Training you know, on cross-cultural awareness. And the world so is forth. bigger than you thought. Yes. Uh, <laughs> is, is my description on the Mission Institute. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, a, a, a typical evangelical church, three-month correspondence course, you're a pastor. That, that's not what I'm suggesting. But between three months and 11 years, maybe there is somewhere in between that we could facilitate it. Well, but, let's go ahead. Then, well, then I was just going to say, you know, he never saw himself as a pastor or as some kind of evangelist. public evangelist. He, he just saw himself as uh, having his sort of intrepid individual Every description I've, I've seen of him is, is he's just very persistent and loved Jesus and just wanted to use every opportunity he could to share with others the convictions of his heart that just is, is like a fire in his bones. And he just had to share Jesus with others. And, and so he's not, not this public speaker or public evangelist. He's just, you know, going around home to home or or later, as he becomes a missionary across the Pacific, going from ship, ship to ship, ship yeah, yeah. So uh, sharing his faith. I'm building an image here yeah. of someone who is very open to new experiences, mm -hmm. who is perhaps on the more introverted side, who has the ability, uh, conscientious, perhaps somebody who has a sense of duty and what is right and what is wrong and this mm -hmm. needs to be done, mm -hmm. and someone who is... Not happy to disagree, but happy to talk to people until they understand something. So sure. that, that's so far what I've picked up from him. Where does the idea of going somewhere else you think comes in? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, the really, that's the really good question. How does he go from working in the mountains of California to saying... Give me a ship. Yes. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Is, okay. Remember Granger that we talked about? Yes. Is leading him. Uh, well, Granger is an educator at heart. And so you're, you're talking earlier, David, about how this was the uh, beginnings of Adventism in California. One of the early things that they established is a school, which becomes Healdsburg College. Today we call it Pacific Union College. Oh. And so uh, Granger 
is placed in charge of that very early on. He remembers his old friend up in the mountains and encourages him, hey, come to school. And, and there are some great descriptions of, of Abram LaRue, this elderly individual with, with white or grayish hair, you know, that, that is with all of these young people. He's older than the teachers at this he probably, point. He is. You <laughs> and know? he'd been Granger's teacher initially to bring him into the faith. Exactly. And, and yet he had a spirit of humility and wanting to Beautiful. learn. And so there he is with all these young people taking classes, wanting to prepare himself for ministry. And so that is that is sort of the catalyst. And it's so he's while. he's probably studying the Bible more more in depth. That's yeah. the sort of things he so, would be studying. So he is looking for the best opportunities he has to prepare himself. And so while he's there at Healdsburg College, that's when um, with about a year later that he reaches out to church leaders and says, "Hey." I would love to be a missionary. I want to go to Asia. In fact, I want to go to China and go be a missionary. And initially, uh, his appeals to church leaders are a little bit rebuffed. It's not that they don't want to send him. I think it's twofold as I read the sources. One is, is that, well, the church hadn't sent a missionary over there yet. And so there's the issue of, of cost, you know. Uh, yes. You know, Andrews going to Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very you know, it's a lot of sacrifice. It's yeah. a lot of risk. And the fact that he's older, too, you know, can can he really do it? Mm. So it's those that I, kind of dual thing that that makes church leaders hesitant. And, and by this time, he's now in his 60s. Exactly. He's even older. So and is this the late 70s? If I'm this is tracking? the 1880s. This 1880s. Is the 1884 so is when have, he makes his appeal to church leaders. We have some send experience me. in sending missionaries now as a church. Yeah. So it's not outside of, of the realm of imagination for him mm -hmm. to write and, and see. Being at the college, he learns how to communicate with church leaders mm -hmm. because that's always the thing. I have my opinion over here. How do sure. I communicate this <laughs> yeah. to the people that could, you know? Yeah. So he writes to them and they say... Well, maybe not go all the way to China, but, but maybe go to some of the Pacific Islands. And so, and actually he does that. He goes to the Sandwich Islands as they were known then, or what we today call Hawaii. And mm -hmm. just to make the point, Hawaii yeah. was then an independent kingdom. Indeed. It's not a part of the United States. It's its own kingdom ruled by a Polynesian dynasty. Uh, so it's an independent country. So actually he is a foreign missionary in going to Hawaii. Today he wouldn't be because it's part of the United States. Right. But back then that was, that was, a, big, that was a big thing. It's, it was as exotic as it comes, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I still want to emphasize that he's a self-supporting missionary. There's yes. still no funds to send him. So it's a matter of, you know, hey, uh, you go ahead and go, but we're kind of a little bit concerned about, you know, some of the Pacific Islands. So he makes it there. But he's selling health foods. He's selling dried fruits and nuts, those kinds of things. And literature again. And, and literature. So he's a coal porter, basically, and going around. So he, that is how he makes his, his livelihood to support himself in doing ministry. But in Hawaii, he's now working with William Healy again because he right. has been sent as a missionary there as well, right? And that's one of the great things about Adventist mission history are these relationships, right? So obviously, they had worked together before. They're enjoying working together again. And so that I think that speaks very well of Abram LaRue, the kind of down-to-earth, relational, just kind of person, building relationships, getting to know new people. And really, that's what a missionary is, is you have to be a relational person willing to share your faith and, and, and do so in a way that um, is a hopefully winsome 
um, in, in, in your endeavors. To, to some degree, you need to love the other person more than yourself because none of Absolutely. us want to embody ourselves. No one, none of us wants to put ourselves through any shameful situation where you're rejected. That's right. None of us mm -hmm. want to do that. Yeah. But if you love the other more than you love yourself, then really that becomes the tension. Mm. Like, okay, I want that person to live forever. Yeah. If I talk to them, I can increase those chances. <laughs> and by the way, this is also where we have the first picture of Abram LaRue. It's with yes. Healy and a group of others. And... Outside an evangelistic tent. Yeah. So there, there was evangelism, but, mm -hmm. but Healy was conducting it, and LaRue is supporting it and helping probably to guide people to go Bible in. studies, sharing more literature, uh, again, that kind of relational aspect. Sure. And I'll give a little shout out to the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventism. You want to see the pictures, just search for the Abram LaRue. Yep. You can find these pictures. Go to encyclopedia.adventist.org. That's encyclopedia.adventist.org. And just put in the search term LaRue, and it will take you to the article, which in fact was written by Michael. So we have the expert on LaRue with us. All right, so he's in Sandwich Islands, Hawaii. Right. And he says, um, I haven't gone far enough. Haven't gone far enough. How long so. does he stay there? He's there approximately, I think it's um, roughly a couple of years. He's there starting in 1884. We know that he's back in San Francisco in late 1887, early 1888, because he basically comes back to San Francisco to restock, get more dried fruits, mm -hmm. get more literature, and then he has a very good friend that he had met before who said, hey, I'm, I'm going to Hong Kong. If you want a free ride, just hop on board. Because uh -huh. he believes in his missionary work. <laughs> he had obviously befriended him. So we do know this date, March 21, 1888. He leaves on the ship Velocity from San Francisco and then will arrive May 3, 1888 in Hong Kong. So that's a significant date in Adventist That's history. a hugely significant date. That is when Adventist mission to Asia Begun. begins. Officially, yeah. May 1888. It's a, a self-supporting but, but intrepid missionary Adventism dawns in Asia. But the interesting, I mean, there's many interesting, but one of the interesting things about it is this is not because church leaders have sent him, right? He's done, yeah. this, he's done this almost in despite of church leaders. Yeah, the, and, and this is, you know, interesting because even years later, he would kind of have several different accounts of this, but he was known to, to say to others, um, especially the Andersons who will come at the very end, uh, they, they would kind of probe him. And, and, and so he would sort of, um, uh, in a jovial kind of way, would say that I have... I've kept just within the borders of my commission. So he's on the island of Hong Kong. The church leaders told him you can go to the islands of the Pacific. So he wants to go to China, yet he's on an island just on the edge of China. That's so clever. he's this technically is... fulfilling his, <laughs> yeah. what this he is, was allowed to do. This is, this is the, 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 the great anecdote, in fact, isn't it? Yes. That he, he goes to church leaders and says, send me to China. And they say, well, maybe not, but go to an island of the Pacific, which of course he does in he does. the Sandwich Islands or Hawaii. Yeah. But then Hong Kong, I mean, well, Hong yeah. Kong is an island. It's, an it's island. on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. So he's technically so. <laughs> fulfilling what church leaders told him he could do. <laughs> and yet he gets his way too. So. But still, he's, this, isn't, this, this is inspiring because yes. it isn't a case of church leaders saying, let's do this as a strategy. In fact, church and this is one of the interesting stories of early Adventist history. Um, on an earlier podcast, uh, we talked about how missions started in Egypt mm -hmm. by a self-supporting missionary. Mm -hmm. um, and 
early Adventists, many of them are just on fire with wanting to share the gospel and the three angels' messages. And so they don't wait on church leaders. And unfortunately, we have to say that's a good thing because church leaders Mm. could be quite cautious. Yeah, and I think there's a missiological pattern that's here too, right? That that we see happen in a lot of different places where, for example, Europe, you know, first you have Tchaikovsky who goes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just boldly has a fire in his bones as well. And then later you have official church missionaries that will follow up like Jane Andrews yes. and, and organizes the work. And, and you see that in a lot of different places. And you see this here in Asia with Abram LaRue. And well, later I think we'll have an opportunity. I hope that we can talk about this some more, but, but here he is. And, and there's, there's not, you know, there's not approved budgets like, oh, we, we voted a budget. It's, you know, we would love to do this. We just don't see how we could possibly do it. Mm-hmm. And Abram LaRue says, please, I will find a way to do this, whatever it takes. And so church leaders are like, well, we're kind of worried about you, but um, all right, you know. There is a lot of frustration, Michael, with, from young Adventists in their early 20s, different from LaRue, but the same principle. They're very open to new experiences. They Mm -hmm. see what the future holds. They're very visionary. They Mm -hmm. see the trends. Mm -hmm. And they see those trends much earlier than church leaders. So when they see those trends, they think the church should be doing this. This would really help the mission go forward. But then they need to help much older more cautious individuals to understand this. And that's so hard to do because we right. don't want, we are very careful mm. to elect church leaders that are very open to the next big thing that's coming. Mm-hmm. We don't want our, the church's money to be spent by people who are trigger happy. Yes. Who are saying there is a new yep. trend over here. Let's go. Oh, there's another trend over there. Let's go. That's not advantageous. Medium to long term, that doesn't work. Yes, people who rise in the church uh, structure tend to be conservative, in fact. We tend, to, we tend to vote and elect conservatively as well as to act conservatively. That's right. And, and this is important. But perpetually, it is also important to have people that would see opportunities mm-hmm. and would take those opportunities in their own responsibilities yeah. to do those things like Abraham LaRue Mm -hmm. did. We're still talking about what he did precisely because he said, I'm going to do what God is calling me to do, Mm -hmm. whether the church can see this yet to invest in it. And what I admire about Abram LaRue here as we look at his story is he sees the opportunity, carpe diem, you know, sees the day. He Mm -hmm. goes and seizes the day. And then later, as there are opportunities for reinforcements, he supports that and sees that and he loves his church and tries to work in building up the, the work of the church in a more organized manner. So he doesn't see that, well, the church never supported me, so why should I support you kind of thing, no, right? No, he, he, he's he humble just, enough. He's humble. He says, to oh, work with the I just, leaders. if we could have more support, how much more could we do? Mm-hmm. He sees the vision, the, the, the opportunity, the potential that's there. And Abram LaRue goes himself and then prepares the way for others. So he does not harbor resentment for the church, not seeing what he sees. He does not become a cynic no, and he does no. not. So, okay, so he's there. Now yeah. we painted and, this glorious picture. Of, and yeah. 1888 means he goes when he's 66. Yeah. yeah. So that would be old to start a, a, that, a mission right. today. Right. But in the 19th century, 66 is, is 
the whole, you know, you have three score years in 10 is meant literally because people really do die at 70. So this is, this is extraordinary that LaRue is willing to do that. Yeah. And I, let's highlight just very briefly, I want to make sure to highlight what he actually does in Hong Kong. Right, which I think is really glorious important. picture. Yeah. He arrives, people it, get baptized. It's wonderful, it's right? It's not always easy because you know he's doing the same thing that he did in the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, and that is he's he's um, supporting himself with uh, dried fruits and nuts and health foods and, and so literature. And literature. Uh, one of the first things he does is he befriends uh, a, a native Chinese person that's there. That's an official translator for the uh, official. Uh, colony there, the, the British, British colony, colony. Mm -hmm. and so he he befriends this person, says, "Hey, I'll help you," and and translates a tract that he writes that's titled simply "The Judgment." I've never seen a copy of it, but we know that's what it was, as well as the first two chapters of Steps to Christ, and those become the very first literature, Adventist literature in. Uh, well, Mandarin, but Chinese, you know, and and uh, from that, he's able to sh to share a little bit slowly. He's not seeing very much <clears throat> results, but he's planting the seeds. And the other thing he does, one one more quick thing, is that he goes on the ships. Right. And passes out literature that then goes out to all kinds of different places. Because, of course, Hong Kong is one of the great port cities of Asia. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we do have to say, mostly LaRue is working with expatriate Europeans and Americans in Hong Kong. It's a British colony. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of Chinese who live there, but it is a British colony. LaRue, as far as we know, never learns Chinese. He oh. may have learned a, a smattering a few of words. Yeah, yeah. but he, so he's work and that's, so he has to work with the expatriate community, mm -hmm. but that's still a sizable community. And the fact that he does translate things into Chinese show he's not content just to work for the foreigners living mm -hmm. in Hong mm -hmm. Kong. He does have that vision, but he's limited by what he can do. And, and by but the way, he does it. He does what he, he can do. He does what he can do. He doesn't just sit at home going, well, no, he doesn't have much time either. He knows he's old and he needs to get something done. Right. So he, he uses that. We don't know very much, but we do know that he went on a couple of trips out there because he was friends with different ship captains. We know at one point he makes his way up to Japan, sees the potential, stays with some Seventh-day Baptist missionaries, writes back to his old friend W.C. Granger and says, it, you know, makes an appeal. We need more missionaries. I'm sure he's thinking of the students. We need at, missionaries. They yeah. didn't have any missionaries yeah. there at the time. At Healdsburg College. And, and instead of, of sending some young people, Granger himself actually goes and will become a pioneer Adventist missionary wow. to Japan. And so this is sort of how it works. It's, it's relational, right? And, and so we know he went to a number of different places throughout Asia on various ships, spreading literature, he traveling, visits, and, he and visits. And he visits the. He does visit mainland China on on some of his voyages. He goes to Shanghai and Guangzhou, maybe other places as well. I want to draw a, um, ask you another question, both of you actually, because th there is a painting of Adventist history that positions all of Adventism prior to eighty eight mm -hmm. as having as not having Christ at the center. Larue leaves in eighty eight. He's not part of that experience post-88. Even the debate, it doesn't seem that he, he seems involved in that. But his first effort is to print the first two pages or to translate the first two chapters of, of Steps to Christ. How has he navigated that mm. shift in Adventist uh, emphasis? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really don't have an answer for that in that, you know, 
Um, when I look at history, it's complex. So just mm -hmm. because the church was struggling, let's say, with legalism and stuff like that, doesn't mean that was the experience of every Adventist sure. prior to 1888. And, and he doesn't really comment about that. I mean, his focus is he loves Jesus and the beautiful Adventist message. And I'm just going to go and share it and do whatever I can. And there's a new book, Steps to Christ. This is amazing. Let's make sure it's available. Let's get it translated as soon as possible. So here's someone who just deeply loves Jesus. And, and so he's really not, he, because, I, you know, he's, he's traveled halfway around the world. He's really not caught up in some of the nuances of debates back at church headquarters, although he may or may not have been aware of it. I, I don't know, David, maybe you know. No, I, no. I don't know, but I do think it's striking. <laughs> The, the two things he puts into print while he's in Hong Kong is a tract on the judgment, mm -hmm. which could be seen, as you say, we're not aware of any copies that survive. We know that he did it. Yeah. But j something on the judgment could well be seen as being to do with legalism. But, yeah. but then he also does steps to Christ. So there's a balance there. Yeah. And I think that's striking about him and that he personally seems to have found this balance. And... He clearly must have the love of Jesus because nobody would do what he did without that, without that, yeah. without that. I, but, you know, I do. There is one point I'd like to make in, in defense of the church, sure. which is even though LaRue takes the initiative to go himself mm -hmm. and, as you nicely said, Michael, presses his commission to its very bounds. Mm. But the church embraces that. If you look at the church's statistical reports in the 1890s, they regularly report one missionary in China. Hmm. So even though he's self-supporting, the church regards him as a church worker. The distinction we have today between a church worker and a self-supporting worker doesn't exist. Right. If you're working to spread the Adventist message, you are a church you're worker. You're part of the team. You're part of the team, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that you're actually supporting yourself financially instead of receiving money being sent from the United States doesn't matter. So uh, this isn't to underplay his commitment you know, how difficult must it have been to sustain himself in Hong Kong uh, simply by what he could sell? But nevertheless, the church embraces him and recognizes this is our missionary in China. And the more you can support yourself means that the less you're drawing resources that maybe someone else might need more than you. Right. And the, right. And the less oversight you have, too. My, my mom loved planting churches in towns and cities that didn't have any Adventist church. Sure. Mm. And we did it all in a self-sustaining manner, yeah. which basically meant um, we would go and, and then start co-porting and so on. And in six months, a year, two years, there would be a group of people that the yeah. conference would send. Yeah. But she was always considered part of the team. Yes. Sure. Um, yeah. But that's probably because in hindsight, she did not want the committees to decide how she was going to do her work. That, yeah. that must have had something to do with it, too. And, and I want to speak to this point because, uh, and, and David, I've told you about this, how I was doing some research out at Pacific Union College and yes. the archives and found some new things I had not seen before. So that's part of the process of always learning. And one of the things I found actually is two things. One was a stock certificate of the Health Institute by Abram LaRue. So even though he would have been a, a traveling, I think he would have been in Sandwich Islands at that point, he, he's still sending a little bit of money back to buy a stock certificate and they didn't know where to send it to him. So mm. they just kept it there in the archives. It was never actually sent to Asia. It's just sitting there with a little note on it. Like, does anyone know his mailing address kind of thing? And then the second thing is, is that there's another note that apparently at a later point when he actually does get to Hong Kong, they know where he is. And there's, uh, there's some record that the students at 
well, Healdsburg College, mm -hmm. as it was known, had uh, taken and worked extra drying fruits mm. and shipped some fruits over to Abram LaRue that he could in turn sell wow. and help support his missionary endeavors. So years later, there's still that relationship he has with this school that they see him as sort of a they mission <laughs> uh, support. You know, let's see what we can do to help support good old Abram LaRue. We remember him and he loved us and we want to help encourage and, and support that missionary endeavor. Those are great discoveries, Michael. And what they show is firstly that LaRue himself is committed to giving anything he can that's extra yeah. back to the church. Absolutely. That he's investing in what today is St. Helena Hospital, was then the rural health retreat, only the second Adventist sanitarium or hospital in the world yeah. there on the West Coast. But also it shows that he is actually, his very presence in Asia is helping to motivate and mobilize Adventists back in the United States to do things to help him. Yeah. And, and who knows what other discoveries there might be out there still in some archives that shows more about that. Maybe, you know, people banding together to send him literature to sell. Um, it, we do, it, there could be an even greater mobilization of people on behalf of China than we're aware of because he had the, the boldness to go and the church embraced him and said, yes, he is our missionary. And this is the fun part of Adventist history, isn't it? It's like being a detective. You're, you find a new source and then it just yields new vistas and, and a, a better understanding of the past. And, and I, I think one more thing I want to leave on is, you know, he writes back and Granger comes out to Japan, but he's also writing back and saying, you know, there's, there's real opportunities. And at the, at the end of his life, He's writing back, could you please send some missionaries? I, I have some people, some sailors that I've been working with that they're interested in the Adventist message and they want to be baptized. They were on these uh, warships. One of them we know the name of, the, the Terrible, the HMS Terrible. Um, and so there's these sailors that are here. And it's also in a time that's very tumultuous. We, we know this today. We call it the Boxer Rebellion, this sort of mm. anti-foreign sentiment. And, and in the wake of that, that he's saying, this is an opportunity for the church. We really, I need help. And that really sets the stage for reinforcements who will come out, the, the Andersons, um, JNN and Emma Anderson and Ida Thompson, who will um, come out. We'll talk about them in, a, in, in another episode. Future We're episode. Have Michael come back with us and talk with us again. There we go. And, and by the way, coming back to an earlier theme, he supports them, says, you know, I need that help and paves the way for future missionaries that come in and will actually help to organize the work. Michael, it's been fascinating, but we need to draw to a close. Tell us how LaRue's time in Hong Kong came to an end. Well, it is a little bit of a sad story. Of course, he is quite elderly. We know that he had malaria. We know that he was exposed to typhoid. He was quite ill. And so it was a matter of a very short time after the Andersons arrive out there that he is, they, they realize that this is the end. This is the end, that he is dying. And um, they're there to kind of take care of him. And he passes away and he is buried in what is known as the Happy Valley Cemetery there right. in Hong Kong. I think, David, you've been there. I've been there. I have photographs of me at his, at his graveside. Um, it was a very, you know, very, uh, very moving experience to stand there and think of this man who was willing to give so much. 
uh, and who was so undaunted even at, a, uh, at an elderly age. So he dies in 1902. He dies in 19, uh, actually early 1903. 1903. 1903, and uh, I've been there, done the same thing. I just felt like I was on sacred ground, not because these pioneers were sacred, but because of the sacrifice, the spirit mm. of sacrifice, and just to be able to stand there was a truly moving uh, experience for me as well, to think back of this sacrificial life of this pioneer and, um, you know, uh, Anderson, who's there at the very end, he says, you know, he wasn't this, this great orator. He wasn't this great, uh, you know, he, just a very modest, humble individual. But then Anderson says, God uses those who are willing to be used, referencing right. Abram LaRue. That's a great note on which to end, I think. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. I look forward to talking to you again. If you've been watching this, you're interested in mission. Otherwise, it's a very odd thing that you've watched this far. <laughs> so I want to encourage you, if you're not going to be called to be Abram LaRue, perhaps that's not God's goal for you, then you can at least be like that farmer's wife that passes on literature. Because today there are millions of Asians who believe that Jesus is coming and who are missionaries uh, trying to inspire the whole of Asia. And all that started with some literature that was passed on to a shepherd back in California. You can't make this stuff up. It's amazing to see how God leads. And perhaps one day we'll be talking about how God led you. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.